0: Hi everyone and welcome to the 50 years ago in hockey podcast. This is our 126th weekly episode. I'm your host Rick Cole. Every week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network we take a trip down memory lane 50 years back in time to bring you all the hockey news from that period. Exactly as it happened written by some of the greatest sports writers of all time this week it's April 10 to 16 1972 if you like what we do here every week on the podcast you can help us out a lot by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and subscribe subscribers to the podcast not only get early access to each week's free podcast, podcast but we do have some special content that we put out from time to time and we will be doing so in the near future we hope. Uh, The special content uh, we closely examine the issues of the day and they give us a chance to delve more deeply and in greater detail to the things that were making headlines in those days. We get a chance especially with the World Hockey Association to examine some of the issues as that league finally began to take shape and get off the ground. So that's patreon.com slash hockey50years to subscribe. So the 1972 Stanley Cup playoffs, by now after a week, were in full swing. And, and really there, there weren't a ton of surprises so far. Most people had the Bruins sweeping Toronto, but the Leafs avoided that fate by edging the Bruins in their second game to make it go at least five. The Rangers got up quickly on Montreal, but no one expected the Habs to leave the scene without putting up a fight. Uh, And they did get back in with a game to make it a 3-1. Chicago had dispensed with Pittsburgh with relative ease. Although the games uh, were all close, that series outcome was never seriously in doubt, even though the Penguins took the Hawks to overtime when they lost that fourth straight game. It was a record-setting overtime. Pitt-Martin scored after only 12 seconds. The real toss-up series, although you could say the New York-Montreal series, had that element. It was Minnesota-St. Louis. Now, the Stars finished the season 20 points ahead of the Blues, but as you watch those games, the eye test told us this one was going to be much closer than the regular season finishes would indicate. So, first off, let's get to the games, and then we'll have the news of the week to close out the show. Uh, There were a lot of things happening off the ice that were fairly significant as well this week. But uh, let's talk about the games that took place. In Series A, the Bruins were leading Toronto three games to one. And that was pretty much running true to form. Uh, the Leafs weren't really expected to win a game, but they did take game two. They were in most of the games, but as usually happens between two teams when one team is just too much for the other, when it gets down to the nitty gritty, the Bruins just had too much for King Clancy's gritty little club. Uh, Clancy gave the Leafs outlook to Boston's Globes' Will McDonough just before the fifth game took place. The King said, I'll pick the guy that I think is the sharpest in practice before the game when McDonough asked him who was going to play goal. Would it be the wily veteran Jacques Plant or the very steady Bernie Perrant turning into one of the NHL's best goalies? Clancy said, my guys are hurting. They've been hurting right along, but you haven't heard anything uh, like an alibi from the Leafs. Clancy went on to say that he'd heard a lot about Oren Esposito being hurt before the thing started, but those fellows, according to Clancy, certainly didn't look hurt to him. So rather than pick uh, the goaltender uh, on sharpness, Clancy will probably do whatever his trainers tell him. He said, I don't know who'll be in net for us. Both of our guys have played well. It all depends on how they're doing physically. The Bruins uh, took the Leafs, as you mentioned, that night by uh, a score, I believe, of 3-2. to two, And the Canadian press had the story on how it went. It wasn't exactly no contest. Tougher than we thought was the unanimous opinion in the Bruins' dressing room after they defeated the Leafs 3-2. to two. Ken Hodge... The rugged Bruins right winger notched his second straight game winner less than two minutes after the surprisingly aggressive Leafs had tied the score at twos early in the final period. There was some tremendous passing by Wayne Cashman and Phil Esposito and Bernie Perrant didn't react as quickly as he had been doing early in the game, said Hodge of his go-ahead score. The game had settled into a close checking affair after a chippy first period that ended with the score tied at one on goals by Jim McKenny of the Leafs and Boston's Freddie Stanfield. The Bruins carried a 2-1 lead in the third period on Johnny McKenzie's goal, setting the stage for Norm Ullman's goal with Boston defenseman Bobby Orr lying atop goalie Cheevers in the Boston goal crease. I thought it would be a tough series. They've got a good team, said Phil Esposito. I wasn't surprised, though, that all five games were really tough. One of the early visitors to the Boston dressing room was Toronto interim coach King Clancy, who offered congratulations to all the Bruins, especially Esposito and Hodge. Boston now awaits the winner of the Minnesota North Stars St. Louis Blues Series. At Madison Square Garden, where Ranger fans were eagerly anticipating the inevitable elimination of the Stanley Cup defending champion Canadians, something uh, strange happened on the way to the garden. The, the Canadians unexpectedly prolonged their series uh, to, to uh, win a fifth game with a tight 2-1 to win, but this one was due mainly to the spectacular work of Habs netminder Ken Dryden. Rex McLeod of the Toronto Star has the game report for us on this one. New York Rangers and 17,250 fans were planning a gala celebration last night at the Garden, but Ken Dryden and the Montreal Canadiens assisted on being party poopers. Rangers had high hopes of winning their first Stanley Cup series on home ice in 32 years, but Canadians, with goalie Dryden performing his 1971 playoff form, Upset those plans with a 2-1 win. Rangers still lead the best of seven quarterfinal, three games to two, and the sixth game will be played in Montreal on Wednesday night. If a seventh Thursday night, sorry, if a seventh game is necessary, it'll be back in New York on Sunday, but New York fans are not planning any special parties. This time, they're going to play it all by ear. Jim Roberts, a utility player for the Canadiens, scored the winning goal early in the third period, his first marker of the series. He and Pete Mahovlich broke away with Rangers defenseman Brad Park, the only obstacle between them, and New York goalie Eddie Jackman. Roberts stalled momentarily, used Mahovlich as a decoy, and then fooled Jackman with a long, hard shot. Vic Hadfield with his fourth goal of the series and 14th of the season against Montreal gave the Rangers a lead with a power play goal in the second period. But Frank Mahovlich tied the score for Canadians little more than two minutes later for Mahovlich, who rivaled Dryden as the dominant man in this game. It was his third goal of the series. Dryden, who led Canadians to the Stanley Cup last season with his superlative play, inspired his team again last night whenever the Rangers put on the pressure. Also, his defense was much more efficient than in the fourth game in Montreal Sunday night. J.C. Trombley, for instance, gave away the winning goal in that game to the Rangers' Pete Stemkowski. In this game, Trombley gave almost a flawless performance. Rangers, although not nearly so aggressive nor composed as in their other games, still had several attractive opportunities to win, but Driver outmaneuvered them every single time. Rangers coach Emil Francis had this to say after the game, remarking it was the fifth game in seven days for both teams, and Francis said he thought that both clubs should be complimented for the way they played. Francis says there was a lot of close check and we could have won it in the second period, but Dryden kept us out and Eddie Jackman played a hell of a game for us as well. Canadiens coach Scotty Bowman, whose frequent line changes had infuriated Montreal critics earlier in the season, continued to switch lines off and off, and some of his moves paid off. Now, you remember last year, same criticism was leveled against Al McNeil, and he ended up coaching in the minors this year. Now one of uh, Bowman's changes, he reunited Jimmy Roberts with Mahovlich and Claude LaRose who had played as a line most of the regular season and of course that line scored the winning goal. So now it is going to be back to Montreal for game six. But at this point we we're going to interject a little off ice news here because of the uh, timing and its relevancy uh, in this particular series. The Canadians won this game with the specter of losing their coach, Scotty Bowman. No kidding. A lot of people don't remember this. But in a huge story, in Tuesday's Montreal Star, just before this game was to be played, as the Habs were preparing to try and prolong the series, sports columnist George Robertson of the Montreal Star one of the city's more prominent, if not respected writers, dropped this bombshell. And here is how the story reads. Scotty Bowman will resign as coach of Canadians shortly after their elimination from Stanley Cup playoffs. The explanation will be that he really only took the job last summer to help old friend Sammy Pollock out of a jam, but that he's not really interested in working behind the bench anymore and would prefer to run his own show as general manager of another National Hockey League team. Robertson cites history in his story. He says Bowman twice gave up coaching during his four-year tenure with the St. Louis Blues, and the second time he attempted to replace himself with Al Arbor at the end of last season. He triggered an ugly showdown with the Solomons, who owned the team, and that ultimately led to his departure From St. Louis. At the risk of demeaning the erstwhile prestigious post of coach of Canadians, Bowman took it only as a last resort last summer according to Robertson. He says he'd hoped to latch on to a job as a general manager with another organization after leaving St. Louis but after being unable to make the right deal with the right organization for himself he turned down a coaching job with Philadelphia and was prepared to spend this season simply just scouting but then the Canadian job opened up. Now there's a polite way of putting it. Make that the trap door opened up and Al McNeil fell through it all the way to the Maritimes. Henry Richard and a few of his fellow players didn't like the way McNeil was taking a third place team all the way to the championship. This very unsubtle message was that the players were winning it all in spite of Al and that he was the worst coach Henry had ever played for. Since he had just finished playing for Claude Ruel, Henry Richard's opinion must have really hurt. Richard's tasteless veto, according to Robinson, in the heat of the Stanley Cup final is what eventually sealed McNeil's doom. And as soon as Bowman took over the job, he wasted a little time in showing Henry Richard, whose boss he named him captain. And although Henry scored a measly 12 goals in 78 games, Bowman was very careful not to bench him. He did allow Henry to criticize a few of his teammates when things were going badly, uh, but he never really uh, disciplined them for it, I guess you could say. Rather, he pretended just to not notice what Henry said, but it was obvious as each day passed, Bowman's real strength at St. Louis had not been as a bench coach, but as a general manager. He had the ability to talk Jacques Plant, Dickie Moore, and even Doug Harvey out of retirement. His foresight in stocking the Blues with such stabilizers as the Plager Brothers, Noel Picard, Jim Roberts, and John G. Talbot, and his acquisition of Red Berenson from New York, his ability to keep plugging holes with po- folks like Ab McDonald and Phil Goyette, were what led to the the blues three successive trips to the stanley cup final scotty bowman the general manager whose perception in selecting talent far outstripped that of all of his other peers in the western division made the job very easy for scotty bowman the coach and general manager according to george robinson is where scotty bowman will be working somewhere in the nhl next year it won't be montreal Of course, the hockey world was all agog over this revelation, especially coming in such a respected uh, missive as the Montreal star. But the very next day, Frank Orr of the Toronto star... Uh, was right on top of the story, he got a hold of Bowman, and Bowman strongly denied the reports that he plans to resign from the team. A story broke in Montreal that I was quitting at the end of the season, Bowman told Orr, but he said, I don't know what basis the people who write such stuff use, but there is simply no truth in it. Bowman said he plans to be the coach of the Montreal Canadiens next season and hopefully for a long time in the future. Of course, Scotty says, there's the other side to it that the club might not want me back, but I have heard nothing to indicate that. And of course, as time would uh, show, he would hear nothing to indicate they didn't want him back. And as we say, the rest after that was history. So Thursday night the teams returned to the Montreal Forum and Ranger fans were hopeful of wrapping the series up but nobody really believed the mighty Habs could be had right there in the Forum and Ranger fans right now after seeing Montreal manage somehow to be completely outplayed and yet win a game right in Madison Square Garden they were thinking that the roof was about to fall in. Well we have Frank Oregon of the Toronto Stars story as how this game turned out, during the past five seasons, Eddie Jackman. Or writes, has carried a major part of the blame for the Rangers' lack of success in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Now they can sing at least part of a new song along Broadway for the Rangers' goalkeeper. Jackman's exceptional work backboned the Rangers' elimination of Canadians in the quarterfinal series, which concluded before 18,196 shocked spectators at the Forum. The final score, 3-2. The series lost four games to two Rangers. Now advanced to the semifinal against Chicago. And those games start Sunday and Tuesday. Where of all the wise guys now who have called Eddie a bad playoff goalie? Asked Ranger manager coach Emil Francis. Eddie was simply great. But then, says Francis, so was our entire team. While Jackman played superbly uh, as he had throughout the entire series... Forwards Walter Kachuk and Bill Fairbairn shared the limelight. Fairbairn had two goals. Kachuk potted the game winner. The scores were almost a bonus the way that uh, the, their defensive work uh, blotted out the Montreal attack. When Supercenter Jean Rattel sustained a broken ankle in February and his mates on the NHL's top scoring line, Vic Hadfield and Rod Gilbert, were hampered by hand and neck injuries, the Rangers certainly appeared doomed against the healthy deep Montreal lineup. But airtight defensive play of the team, backed by Jackman anchored by the efficient defense pairs of Brad Park and Dale Rolf, Rod Sealing and Jimmy Nielsen, and led by Kachuk and Fairbairn up front, more than compensated for the absence of the big shooting goal game line. Kachuk was absolutely magnificent in the final game. He played more than 40 minutes of hard-driving hockey. Fairburn wasn't far behind as they stomped out the Montreal power play and penned the Canadians in their own zone during numerous even-strength situations. In prolonging the series with a 2-1 win at New York Tuesday, Canadians had appeared to gain the required momentum to at least send this series to a seventh game and they opened the uh, final game with a rush pinning the rangers behind their blue line for very much of the first five minutes of the game however the rangers poise allowed them to hold canadians off until their own attack began to function Jackman's goalkeeping was a major part of that as well. From then on, Rangers' blanket checking, especially of Montreal's big shooters, Frank Mahovlich and Ivan Cornway prevented Canadians from acquiring many scoring chances but most Montreal opportunities were good ones and that's where Jackman entered the picture. In the third period he made two extraordinary stops including a one in a season split to halt Frank Mahovlich and preserve the win in the final minutes when the Rangers were two men short Montreal won and Montreal in a pulled goalkeeper situation. Canadians defending Stanley Cup champions gone from the playoffs this year and one of two teams that could win it will be eliminated in the next series as it's going to be the Blackhawks and the Rangers. The other series still being played would resume Tuesday night as well in Minneapolis with the St. Louis Blues visiting the North Stars. Tied at two games apiece. This certainly had to be the pivotal game in the series if you read anybody who wrote anything at all about hockey. The Minnesotans were hoping that this was going to be the pivotal game after they managed to get by the Blues by a score of 4-3. John Paul Parisi broke in for an unassisted third-period goal to tie the score. Then Jude Druin drove in the winner less than three minutes later as the Minnesota Stars defeated the Blues 4-3. The win gave the Stars a 3-2 game edge in the best-of-seven series with six games going Thursday night, and the North Stars having a chance to end it. Druin came in on goal as Bill Goldsworthy passed the puck out from the right corner of the net. Druin fired into the left corner from about 10 feet at 5.45. Parise had stolen the puck from Bob Plager after St. Louis brought it back into their own zone trying to kill a penalty. The puck came off of Plager's skate and he was trying to clear it. Parise picked it up. He went alone beating Blues goalie Jacques Caron for the score at 255. Gary Unger had put the Blues ahead 3-2 when he took a pass from Jack Eagers, turned and fired the puck home at 19:34 of the second period and that was on a power play. Phil Roberto's fifth goal of this series. Man, he was hot. With 1 second left in the first, had tied the score at 2-2. Two two. Earlier goals for the North Stars were by defenseman Barry Gibbs and Tom Reed and the Blues first goal came off the stick of Gary Sabarin. now, despite the loss of the apparently pivotal fifth game, the Blues coach Al Arbor didn't seem phased in in the least by by the loss at all. In fact, maybe Al even in this early stages of his n h l coaching career could see something. Everyone else was missing something. Al was actually pretty good at, and that's why they called him Radar. It was probably because for 40 minutes during the game, the Blues actually had the North Stars on the run. When this one, the series only goes six game, a Minnesota uh, victory at the arena would have been inconceivable, or so it would seem. But the North Stars, who were undoubtedly the better defensive club, turned a sure defeat into the 4-3 victory and put the pressure back on the Blues. But Arbor wasn't faced. He saw what was going on for most of the game. Arbor said, we got a a lot of young players and sometimes they get a little flustered and they make a few mistakes, but these kids certainly do not lack heart. Arbor said, the series isn't over yet and we will be back in Minnesota for game seven. Arbor was figuring the Blues could win in St. Louis and then go back to Minnesota for a seventh game. And Al said, we've been through this before. We'll bounce back. No problem. See ya in game seven. Interestingly, even the Minnesota Papers seem to be rife with doubts about this series, even with their team up. By a game. Coach Jackie Gordon of the North Stars expressed caution over an early celebration and Thursday night the North Stars worst fears were realized. This thing was going to go to a seventh game. What happened? Well, Phil Roberto, red hot Phil Roberto, scored a goal and assisted on two others to lead the Blues to a 4 2 win over the North Stars at the arena in St. Louis and forced the seventh and deciding game Sunday afternoon on national television at Bloomington, Minnesota. Roberto's goal and two assists made him the leading scorer in the playoffs with a total of six goals and five assists, leading Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito by two points. And I did not have that on my bingo card at the beginning of the playoffs. So I was on to game seven back in Bloomington. And it seemed like momentum, quite rightly so, was on the side of the St. Louis Blues. Here's the Associated Press story on the game. Jacques Caron held St. Louis in sudden death overtime with some amazing goalkeeping and Kevin O'Shea scored at 10:07 of extra time to give the Blues the 2-1 victory over the North Stars and thrust themselves into the National Hockey League Stanley Cup semifinal playoffs. The Blues who beat Minnesota 4 games to 3 will meet the Boston Bruins in the first game of the best of seven series. And that actually starts. The night after this report. Two days after the game was played. O'Shea getting his second goal of the series. Blasted his shot. As he raced across the blue line. After passes. From brother Danny and Terry Crisp. The puck struck the crossbar. And then bounced off goalie. Cesar Maniego's back. As a crowd of 15,635. Sat silently. Nobody said bar down back then, but that's basically what that winning goal was. Charlie Burns, with his first playoff goal, had brought the North Stars into a 1-1 tie just 15 seconds into the third period with a soft shot directly in front of the net. Gary Sabrin, always a good playoff performer for St. Louis, had given the Blues a one nothing lead at 12.04 of the opening frame. It was the only mistake during regulation time play by Jacques Caron, who continually thwarted the North Stars was seemingly impossible saves. And if you ever watch Jacques Caron play, when he was in the zone, when he was dialed in, he could be virtually unbeatable. Twice in the last 30 seconds of regulation time, he rose up to Rob Murray Oliver on prime goal possibilities and then swipe away a bullet from the point with 10 seconds left. Frank St. Marseille set up the first period St. Louis goal when he drew two North Stars to the boards in the corner, then passed the puck out to Bob Plager, who loaded a shot from the slot. Sabrin's stick veered into the path of the puck, and it deflected past a helpless Caesar Maniego. Blues coach Al Arbor was full of praise for Karan's goalkeeping. He said Jacques was just fantastic in this series. He made great saves repeatedly to keep us in this game and the other games in which he played. Now Jacques Karan is 31 and he had been called up by the Blues on December 29th. And previous to that, he had only four NHL appearances. Karan said, I asked my wife, what does a guy have to do to get a chance? Well, that chance finally came on December 29th. And Jacques Caron now has won a playoff series for the St. Louis Blues, who now have the unenviable task of facing the Boston Bruins. So the series designated as Series F, the highly anticipated matchup between the Chicago Blackhawks and the New York Rangers, would begin on Sunday night the final game of the week that we're going to talk about at Chicago Stadium. The Blackhawks were well-rested, having been off pretty well a week, actually a full week, after eliminating Pittsburgh and Forest Strait, while the Rangers may have been spent after having a very uh, tough series with the Montreal Canadiens. Well, guess what? Those long layoffs can really be a great equalizer, and that is exactly what happened in this game. Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times submitted his report on this game. The feeling that the Rangers are in the midst of something magical persisted at loud and huge Chicago Stadium as the Rangers opened their Stanley Cup semifinal series with a 3-2 victory over the Blackhawks. The game ended with the crowd of 20,000 on their feet, cheering and then moaning as the Hawks' attempts for a tying goal were all halted, by Eddie Jackman between the New York Pipes. For most of the game, it was a virtual carbon copy of the Rangers' first-round series against Montreal. The Hawks spent themselves in a furious, futile opening period in which they pressed and shot, but they were stopped 14 times by Jackman. Meanwhile, the Rangers got only six shots and none, In the final seven minutes, but their last shot of that period counted, Teddy Irvin whacked it in from close range past Tony. Esposito. The Hawks were defeated in the second period as Brad Park and Walter Kachuk increased the Ranger League to three nothing. Bruce McGregor, Billy Fairburn, and Ron Stewart took turns guarding Bobby Hull, and they succeeded in halting the Golden Jet. As the third period wore on, the crowd became restive as the usually error-free Chicagoans were prodded and pressed into mistakes. They were en route to an easy blanking. With which would have been the first time they would be shut out in 139 contests. And then on a break the type that takes on increased importance in nerve-wracking National Hockey League Cup play. This this break happened for the Hawks. Stan Mikita shot, and the puck caromed off McGregor and rolled past Jackman. Within three minutes, Christian Bortolo deflected home a Jerry Korab slap shot, and suddenly the crowd was alive and the Hawks were within one. Earlier, the fans had stopped cheering. They had seen the Hawks fail to score on three power plays, running their current playoff string to 18-man advantages without a goal, and that had to be troubling for coach Billy Ray. It was a lack of power play shooting that did in Montreal against the Rangers as well however the Rangers bowed but did not break Ed Jockerman was superb the Hawks put on the pressure but they could not get the puck over the goal line Rangers coach Emil Francis said you know what we just didn't give them any room it wasn't that they were stale it was we were that good and the Hawks actually according to Eskenazi were not stale he said that the way they came out charging it looked like they were champing at the bit ready to go mostly they were just outplayed by the Rangers especially defensively and so the Rangers draw first blood in a wonderful semi-final matchup and now to the off-ice news of the week, and there was a quite a bit going on so first of all uh, Monday brought news out of Calgary that was not a good omen for the fledgling World Hockey Association. Three major participants in Calgary's entry announced on Monday morning that they were resigning from the organization leaving the future of the Calgary Bronx entirely in doubt. Scotty Monroe, who was the major backer of this team in the WHA, said he had decided to leave to devote his time to junior hockey. Now, Monroe was uh, one of the biggest mouthpieces of this franchise, Really a classic salesman Uh, A lot of fluff A lot of descriptions But not a lot of substance in what he says Uh, He was constantly talking about How great this WHA team was going to be And all the grandiose plans he had for it Well now all of a sudden Scotty seems to have had a change of heart Saying I feel junior hockey is my life Now soon after Scotty had said this Bill Buswell and Orris Hershick, the other members of the, Broncos, the Bronx organization, announced that they were also withdrawing. And people are are wondering, why would they say this? Well, Hershick simply told the Canadian press that this Calgary WHA endeavor was underfinanced from the beginning, and it can never possibly get off the ground. Smoke and Mirrors, Just doesn't work. Well, immediately, Bill Hunter of Edmonton and Winnipeg's Ben Haskins said they were going to head to Calgary and try and iron out the issues. The WHA was having a meeting during the upcoming weekend, and at that time... Each WHA team, the 12 confirmed clubs, was to post a $100,000 performance bond. Now, this would basically give the new league a $1.2 million war chest, so to speak. Now, at this point, it didn't look like uh, Calgary was in any position to meet that requirement, especially given Horshik's statement. And that was exactly what happened the following weekend when Calgary was not among the cities that posted. That $100,000 fee But a request was made To WHA officials For an extension And that request was granted. Behind the scenes, it was being alleged that work was being done by Haskin and Hunter to somehow keep the idea of the WHA afloat in Calgary. But at this point, it sure didn't look good. There was lots more other news Monday, but uh, we're going to get to some of the uh, other news first, and then we'll get uh, come back to this WHA issues, because this was a seminal week uh, in the history of the WHA. Also Monday, former NHL player Ron Murphy, one of the real good guys around hockey, announced that he was resigning as coach of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Kitchener Rangers. Most people felt Murphy had done a really good job with the young Rangers, but, uh, Ron decided that this was not his thing. He cited the usual more time with the family reasons, but he also made kind of a curious statement, and I was hoping to find more information this, uh, but I just haven't been able to come up with it yet. Unprompted during his re- retirement uh, press conference, Ron said he wasn't bitter toward anyone in the organization, but he was really disappointed in the way the team was being operated. Tuesday afternoon's Toronto Star had the venerable Milt Dunnell, the Dean of Toronto writers. He had this nugget in the notes of his daily column. Al Eagleson, Executive Director of the National Hockey League Players Association, will huddle with Bunny Ahern, the Grand Tsar of European Hockey, during an upcoming tour of Europe. They're probably going to discuss the possibility of the games between Bunny's European champions between the Russians, and a team from the NHL Players Association. And that, of course, raised the question, if you're not a member of the Players Association, would you be able to play in such a series? What if a star player like, say, Bobby Hall went to the WHA? Would he be able to play? No, they wouldn't stop somebody like Bobby Hall playing a series like this if they ever managed to get it off the ground, that is. Would they? Interesting, neat uh, story out of the Toronto Junior B ranks. The headline says, Gabby inspired by chicken dinner. While all the other Markham Waxers ate hamburgers after they won their provincial Junior B semi-final four games to one against the Peterborough Lions, Bruce Gabby Boudreau ate chicken. I didn't know Bruce had the nickname Gabby that early in his life. What made Boudreaux special was the fact that he scored four goals to help maintain the Waxers' season record of never having been defeated more than once by the same team. He requested the special dish from the Waxers' manager, Gus Bedali before the game had started, after the Waxers had weathered a final period outburst that brought Peterborough to within a goal of a tie Gabby told Badali his performance was inspired by the impending chicken dinner. A multi-sport complex which would house professional baseball, football, basketball, and hockey teams has apparently been approved by the State of Maryland General Assembly to be built in an area in downtown Baltimore known as Camden Yards. There's been no news of a formal application to the NHL for a franchise, but you know the WHA would probably be interested in Baltimore if they could get a decent arena. Hockey fans, feel the action on the ice like never before with DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League. Right now, new customers can bet just $1 on any team to win, and you get $150 in free bets if your team is victorious. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still hit the ice for cold, hard Cash new customers can make their first deposit and play free for thousands with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Hockey Contests. Draft your lineup of 8 skaters and a goalie and rack up points for goals, assists, saves and more. DraftKings is safe, secure and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, that's T H P N for the Hockey Podcast Network. Bet just a dollar on any NHL team to win and get $150 worth of free bets if your team wins. That's code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, the official sports betting partner of the NHL. You must be 21 or over. Some restrictions do apply, and see our show notes for all the details. A little more WHA news, actually a lot more WHA news as it was turning out. Buck Hool, the general manager of the Ottawa Nationals of the WHA, says that he has a player very interested in joining the team and that he is typical of what he's heard from many players around the NHL. This young player is defenseman Rick Smith of the California Golden Seals. Smith was traded to California midway through the season of the deal that sent Carol Vadney to the the Boston Bruins well Smith apparently sent the Nats a letter in which he indicated a strong interest in leaving the NHL for the Ottawa team he had questions in the letter about the possibility of signing with the team and I'm sure he asked a few questions like is this money for real We had reported earlier that the Miami franchise, the folks who were signing Bernie Perrant to that ridiculous contract, Miami might be on shaky ground because they didn't have an arena. Well, it turns out the ground was more than shaky. It was crumbling beneath their feet. Owner Herb Martin of the Screaming Eagles franchise was upset that he had not been granted a building permit for his beautiful big new arena office hotel complex. Well, it turns out that Herb had never even submitted the proper plans to the municipality for the arena. Two of four walls were up, but behind those two walls, nothing had been done. He also failed to meet another uh, a number of other municipal requirements, never even submitted any of the required paperwork. But Martin wasn't done. He told anyone who he thought might buy his BS that he was going to post a $100,000 performance fee on the weekend and he would certainly find a place for his team and his very expensive goalkeeper to play. Of course, the big meeting was held on Saturday morning. Lots of hoopla, lots of reporters, a few people actually who knew a little bit about hockey were there. Ten teams posted their performance bonds. Two teams of the 12 that were supposed to be there did not. Those two teams, Miami and Calgary. Calgary asked for an extension saying they were working hard to get ownership for that franchise, and the extension was granted, mainly because it was Bill Hunter and Ben Hatskin who were working to get the the, uh, franchise situation turned around there. But guess what? The Miami team never showed up. No money, although there was a representation. I shouldn't say they didn't show up. A representative of the Miami team asked the league to make an extension so that Mr. Martin could establish where his team was going to play. The WHA, in one of their wiser moves, said, You're in default, you're gone. Now, where this left Bernie Perrant was basically up for speculation Perant said he's got a guaranteed contract although we weren't aware of him having really signed too much yet but he said he'll be fine Well, at the same time as Miami's arena plans were actually non-existent, another city was actually throwing its hat into the ring for an NHL team, and this was Indianapolis, Indiana, where Indiana Professional Sports Incorporated filed an application and sent a check for $25,000 to the NHL as an official application for an expansion franchise and John Weissert, vice president and general manager of that sports group said this makes Indianapolis a bona fide applicant for one of the two expansion franchises that the NHL is going to award on May 25th. And at the same time another American city was approving the construction of a 17,000-seat arena, and that was Cincinnati, Ohio, apparently going to put the rink right near Riverfront Stadium. The city endorses the project in hopes it will lure an NHL team to that city. So the next two teams, you got cities like Kansas City's been around, uh, sniffing around for a while, but they got no stadium, no arena. You got uh, the team like Washington or somewhere in Maryland, Baltimore maybe, looking for a team. And now you got Indianapolis and Cincinnati throwing there. And these two teams sound like they have a pretty good plan. One of the biggest non-stories in years surfaced this week uh, in the NHL, and I laugh a bit because if you were doing the research like I do and you're going through a couple dozen newspapers for every day, this was plastered everywhere. Now, don't forget, strikes were big news these days because baseball, as we were doing this, was just in the process of ending its strike against the major league owners. Well, this week, members of the Chicago Blackhawks somehow got the word out that they were threatening to strike over the National Hockey League's enforcement of the limits on the curve of hockey stick blades. Now, the rule limiting the curves on the blades had been there for a while, but it's the usual practice in the NHL 50 years ago and 50 years later, The rules are there for the convenience of league officials who might have to cite a rule as something being illegal if they have to cover their ass in the case of uh, liability. Uh, Most of the time, though, with NHL rules, it's basically a wink-wink, nudge-nudge attitude towards any type of enforcement. And they're only now, I think, starting to scratch the surface of actually being serious about doing the right thing. Uh, For some reason... In the 72 playoffs, they decided it was time to enforce the, the curvature of the stick rule, although they really didn't want to. But Scotty Morrison, the uh, head of the officials, he went around to every—and listen how ludicrous this was—he went to every team before the playoffs started, and he signed every stick that measured to be legal, signed every stick to measure them that'll be legal, the referee-in-chief. And then the players would all magically use the real sticks. Well, guess what? They checked some of the Blackhawks sticks, and they were using sticks without Scotty Morrison's autograph. Can you imagine that? Of course, the Blackhawks didn't like this. Said you're going to strike. They were pissed off, basically. Well, they were going to take a vote of all the NHL players put it to a vote and see if this is demanding that they would be given more say into the rules and that this could not be happening all the time a day later this much ballyhooed strike idea disappeared into the annals of time dying a quick and necessary death with all the parties saying it was much ado over nothing with the Maple Leafs out of the playoff now speculation which is of course the favorite uh, pastime of Toronto sports writers was in full rumor mode this week. The main topic in Toronto was who's going to coach the Maple Leafs. Up until this point it was generally regarded that former Leafs star Burt Olmstead was going to be offered the job. In fact that had actually leaked out of the Toronto front office but this week that notion seemed to lose some steam and here's why. Milt Dunnell wrote that because the news that Ballard was considering Olmstead had leaked out, it leaked out before he'd even had a chance to discuss the future with incumbent coach John McClellan, who, of course, was ill with ulcers. Well, that effectively, according to Dunnell, eliminated Burt Olmstead from further consideration as Leafs coach. This week, two names not yet mentioned in the Toronto Coaching Derby Came to the fore, and they both came from very prominent very uh, plugged-in writers. Both Dick Beddows and Milt Dunnell, who wrote that there, by the way, were uh, surprisingly few applicants for the Leafs job, suggested that it would only be right to offer the job to former Toronto Maple Leafs captain George Armstrong. Neither knew whether Armstrong even wanted the job or whether he would accept it, but they felt he was the right guy to be offered the job at this point. But here is where it got kind of interesting because of who these writers were and how well plugged in they were. Both of them also suggested, while Armstrong was the best man available to take over behind the Toronto bench with the keyword there being available, they both said that the man Harold Ballard really wanted to coach his Toronto Maple Leafs was red kelly who had done such a great job with the pittsburgh penguins now red had recently agreed to a contract extension with pittsburgh and it was made abundantly clear that red was not going to be available to coach the toronto maple leafs and this is why they were suggesting george armstrong's name but i think both of them had an idea that maybe the leafs would somehow try and get kelly out of pittsburgh Stay tuned on that one. Well, Red Fisher, the Montreal star, couldn't resist joining the speculation as well. And he wrote almost as if it were fact, that the Maple Leafs will try and convince former Bruins coach Harry Sinden to take a quick trip across Lake Ontario from Rochester, where he was working as a housing company executive, and take over the Leafs. Now, Harry had already denied talking to Toronto, but Fisher correctly points out that didn't mean he wasn't interested. The main stumbling block At least the way I looked at it back 50 years ago, the stumbling block to this story was that I figured Harry Sinden was way too smart to fall into the trap of working for Harold Ballard. Another bit of Leafs news, by the way. Harold Ballard said that if rumors at the AHL Rochester Americans were going to be for sale, he was certainly interested in purchasing that franchise. By the end of the week, the WHA did get a bit of good news. The second player to leave the NHL for the new league was announced, and he was veteran right winger Wayne Connolly, who blossomed as an NHL star with the Minnesota North Stars during the very early first years of expansion. Connolly was now with the Vancouver Canucks after enduring a series of trades that took him from Minnesota to Detroit to St. Louis to New York. To Vancouver just in the last couple of years. Wayne says he was opting for the stability of a five-year contract for between fifty dollars and $60,000 a year. You see, Wayne really just wanted to stay in one city for a decent period of time, and he felt the World Hockey Association offered him his best chance at that. And for that, you really couldn't blame him. Al Eagleson was in the news on another front this week besides international hockey. He was at some sort of a banquet on Friday night, and apparently it is said after a few too many glasses of Merlot, Al started talking about hockey players and the WHA. He said that several NHL players were ready to and would announce that they were also jumping to the WHA to follow Connolly and Bernie Perrant. And he named names. Fellows, he said, were ready to jump. Pete Mahovlich, Larry Plow of Canadians. The Leafs, Brian Glennie and Mike Pellick. And the Canucks, Dale Talon and Andre Boudreaux. And it's interesting that these six players all play for Canadian teams. Well, the very next day, Larry Plow said... He was not, at this point, ready to agree to a WHA contract with the New England Whalers, but he did not deny that he might in the future. And another WHA rumor had Rudy Pillis, the man who led the Chicago Blackhawks to their last Stanley Cup in 1961. Rudy was said to be the uh, favorite to become the first coach of the WHA Chicago Cougars. Our final note of the week, the 11-year-old kid from Brantford, Ontario named Wayne Gretzky finished off his hockey season this week when he scored 17 times in three games to lead his Brantford team to win in the Kingston Young Nats, Young Nats hockey tournament. He scored 17 goals in three games and that left him with something like 372 goals for the season, and so far in his organized hockey career, this is organized hockey for an 11 year old, they're counting this. The kid apparently is said to have 700 goals. I wonder how long it'll be before he disappears from the scene. An 11 year old scrawny kid from Brantford with the unlikely name of Wayne Gretzky. <sighs> so that is this week's show everyone would we learn this time around well we learned that the defending stanley cup champion montreal Canadiens were not going to be two-time winners they were eliminated by the new york rangers in six games but now the question was would the rangers have enough left to get by the powerful chicago blackhawks The Blues came from behind three games to two to oust the North Stars in seven games, only to learn that their opponents would be the Boston Bruins. I can't see that going more than four. And some interesting names were surfacing as possible coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. So tune in next week. We will continue our coverage of the 1972 Stanley Cup playoffs as we search for some maybe big upsets, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen this year. There are too many good teams and not enough of them to make it all interesting. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank Andy enough for all his hard work. Andy produces podcasts professionally. If you're interested in getting one, go and get a hold of me. I'll hook you guys up. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, The Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. They're going on tour in May all across the United States. They have some shows in Canada as well. You get a chance to see them perform near you. Don't miss it. They put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces in the podcast and all the sound effects are created by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files of the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at our other sponsor, newspapers.com. And please don't forget, if you're ever in the Niagara region, head over to the Breakwall Brewing Company in Port Colborne, Ontario. It's where I live. For a beer and a burger, I'd love to meet some of our listeners there. It's a great place to sit around, talk some hockey, and enjoy some amazing craft beer and pub food. You can find this... uh, on Facebook under 50 Years Ago on Hockey. We still have the Twitter account at Hockey50Years. Our WordPress site is Hockey50YearsAgo.com. We are right here every week on the Hockey Podcast Network, and you can get us through your favorite podcast app, whatever that might be. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. The Stanley Cup Finals are getting more interesting as each week goes on, and we're going to be with you all the way, we hope, you'll join us as well. And on that note, we'll see you next time. When the ice